Well, I think that what is becoming clear is that we don't really have our Greta Thunberg of the art world yet. So inherent in that is a huge opportunity. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Last week, we turned our attention to art fairs, in particular Art Basel, the biggest art fair of all, to explore whether these glamorous trade shows that have helped the art industry go global to an unprecedented degree are sustainable for art galleries, which now must roam the world like traveling salesmen to make their businesses work. This week, the Art Angle has actually traveled down to Art Basel, Miami Beach to examine a much thornier, more urgent, and frankly, more depressing question. Are art fairs, which have become the central engine of the art business, sustainable not just for the art world, but for the real, actual world, the planet? This is a more pressing question than you might immediately think. This week, tens of thousands of collectors, art professionals, and sundry pleasure seekers have flown into Miami, often on emission-spewing private jets, where they are spending most of the week shuttling between the city's art events in fleets of Ubers and VIP cars brought in for the occasion. Then imagine that pretty much every gallery participating in Art Basel or one of the week's more than a dozen satellite fairs have also flown in crates filled with artworks to display in their temporary stands. Now step back and think that this enormous bacchanalia of carbon emissions is repeated year-round to varying degrees at the nearly 300 art fairs that take place around the globe. Yikes, right? The irony on top of all this is that many of the coastal destinations that draw the art world's peregrinations are the ones that are most immediately at risk of climate change. The Art Basel Art Fair is taking place just a few blocks from Miami's waterfront, where the sea level has tripled over the past decade, causing the city to ship in imported sand to keep its coastline from disappearing entirely. And this is just a prelude of things to come. Given the art world's cherished progressive reputation, how long can I justify the extraordinary outsized habits of its fairs, institutions, and jet-setting elites? To tackle this inconvenient question, I'm joined this week by Artnet News European editor, Kate Brown, who has covered the issue extensively and who joins us by phone from Germany. Welcome to the Art Angel, Kate. Hello from a dark and cold Berlin. So this week, as people are happily shopping at the art fair, the big news ricocheting around the internet is that someone paid $120,000 for a banana that the artist Maurizio Catalan taped to a wall at Art Basel. But outside the fair, a serious backlash to the spectacle of conspicuous consumption is brewing. What is happening exactly, Kate? Well, I would first like to mention that we can be glad about the banana because it is biodegradable. That's good point. (laughs) One bonus for for Maurizio Catalan's uh, ecological footprint. What's happening is that last week, the BBC published a study that said we are closer to passing major tipping points than we thought. So I think that the art world, which has sort of happily been plowing along and hoping that it can continue to do so, is going to become increasingly encountered with a new reality, which is that these questions just can't be ignored. I think since I was roaming around the fair last June, asking people about climate change and getting largely no answers, which somehow says more than an answer could say, what has happened is there's been a couple of really disturbing events that you can parallel, like the Notre Dame burning and a bunch of philanthropists rushing to the scene to give tons of money to this beautiful monument of soft power of Europe. 
And then at the same time, during Freeze London, the Amazons are burning and it's just business as usual in the art world. So I think these things are just becoming so difficult not to start to connect the dots of how troublesome this is all really becoming, our habits. So what do we know about the actual climate footprint of events like art fairs? Are there any known statistics that we have about how these impact the climate? I think that's a bit of a problem is that we don't. And I think that the first thing that really needs to start happening is that in the same way that you know how much sugar is in your beverage, I think that we need to start to know exactly what a carbon footprint of any given event or any given flight is. And it needs to be more directly attached to these things. In terms of Something as complicated and complex as an art fair event, it's very hard. You know, to quote Fritz Dietl, who runs a shipping company, it's more of an art than it is a science. But, for example, he has half the floor at Art Basel, and their shipments have cost about 1,000 metric tons of CO2. By comparison, a car is 4.6 metric tons of CO2 in a year. You know, it's quite a bit. So if you double that, maybe the shipments of Art Basel are somewhere upwards of 2,000 metric tons, which is a huge number for an event that lasts about five days. So from your reporting, what is the climate like at this week's fair when it comes to climate change? Well, I'm not physically at the fair, which I wish I could say was because I'm a climate activist, but I just happen to be in Berlin. However, I think that the biggest difference between now and six months ago is that Art Basel has increasingly had to answer to this question. They have for example, been a bit proactive in their PR about it and have been saying that they're going to carbon offset the conversation panelists and all of their staff and this kind of thing. So I think that it's a little bit of a branding rush in a way. No one wants to look bad, whereas before no one wanted to talk about it. I think everybody is sort of hurrying to have the right kinds of answers. Really, the main problem is that we're doing Art Basel Miami Beach in Miami Beach at all, because, of course, the statistics show that 30% of the beach is going to be underwater by 2045. So it's just becoming increasingly unsustainable. And I think carbon offsets and panels about this subject are a band-aid over what is increasingly becoming an untenability of art fair travel in general. Are you saying that art fairs in these kinds of vulnerable cities and vulnerable locations are particularly egregious? Or are you saying that art fairs in general are particularly egregious? As I understand it, if you're taking a short haul flight for four days, that carbon footprint is substantially larger than if you're traveling somewhere and staying there for a month. So I think that art fairs, in the sense that they're so short term, is what is becoming increasingly incongruous with the idea of being sustainable. It's interesting because it ties into the big topic last year, which was this idea of fatigue, and people are becoming a bit tired of traveling around to fairs. And fairs are becoming very expensive for galleries to participate in, especially smaller ones, and the risks are really high. And so now all of this is becoming compounded by climate concerns. To me, it spells a total transformation that's needed. So who is Extinction Rebellion? Well, Extinction Rebellion is a decentralized action group. And they started in London in 2018. I mean, that's the other incredible thing about a lot of these movements, even Greta Thunberg, like all of this is working under a really short timeline of just a year. So they're largely based in Europe and they sort of have three main policy points, if you will. One is that they're working to get every 
corner of the industry and of government to declare a climate emergency. And then their other second goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. They are also hoping to establish a citizens' assembly on climate justice, although I haven't really understood what that's going to look like. Nevertheless, they're very impactful group, especially because I think they've really honed the power of imagery really well. They're completely viral, even though they're only operating in major cities. And they haven't exactly had the same kind of impact in the U.S. as they have in Europe, but it seems that they're starting to now. I mean, they're not just doing fun graphic design motifs and posting them on Instagram. They're actually out there in the streets doing some really fairly aggressive and attention-grabbing kind of activities. Can you describe some of the tactics that Extinction Rebellion has been bringing to the fore so far? Yeah, well, they have this brigade, which is these characters that you've probably seen floating around in these red costumes and white faces. They're sort of like sci-fi mimes or something. And they've been actually around for quite some time. And they're sort of not subsidiary, but ancillary to the Extinction Rebellion. They're not actually the same thing, but (laughs) they've become kind of co-opted into the same greater movement because they have similar goals. Extinction Rebellion's strong pseudo is that they're nonviolent. So they're trying to be disruptive without being violent in any way. And so Mm. part of that disruption is through powerful imagery. And like you said, it's not just about waving around signs. It's about really creating images that are going to move people as they see them flowing through their feeds. Am I correct Um, to say that they've also been doing things like die-ins in museums in Britain and also spraying blood red paint on government buildings and They've been pretty disruptive, I guess. Yeah, they've had a die-in at the Natural History Museum. Two of the protesters had oil poured over themselves when they were dressed in nothing but underwear at the National Portrait Gallery to protest BP. And they've also been blocking bridges in London and Berlin so that cars can't get home at the end of the day, which has you know garnered mixed responses from people. So, Kate, you've actually recently spoken to one of the ringleaders of Extinction Rebellion. Did he tell you anything about what their strategy is and why, in particular, they've decided to engage with the art community of all places to get their message out? Yeah, well, first thing would be to say that he is not a leader because this is William Skeeping Mm -hmm. of Extinction Rebellion. And he has stressed to me that it is a leaderless movement. So Uh he is one of the many activists, I suppose. But nevertheless, William Skeeping is one of the more active activists in the group that has a lot of art expertise because he has a background in art history. So he can speak to the art world very fluently about these issues. And he started an ancillary group to Extinction Rebellion called Culture Declares Emergency. And they are the group that successfully lobbied the tape to declare a cultural emergency, which was quite major. But basically, the reason that they are coming after the art world is because we sometimes take this for granted, but artists and arts journalists and all of the different people who are working at fairs have the ear of some of the most famous, powerful people in the world, because those are the people who are buying art. The other thing is that we are an industry that is promoting values of humanity. And so it's very oxymoronic to also be an industry that has a huge carbon footprint or is largely disregarding the issue as a talking point. So those are sort of the main reasons that they've come after the cultural sphere. So the art world has been slow in coming to grips with its impact on climate change, but it hasn't been completely inactive. What are some ways art fairs are trying to moderate their negative impact on the planet? 
Well, carbon offsets is one of them. We had mentioned Basel trying to offset the carbon footprints of its staff and some of its speakers. Freeze had a biofuel generated tent this year, as opposed to operating with petroleum or diesel as it had in previous years. And of course, to the chagrin of some VIPs, they stopped using plastic VIP cards. So, you know, there are things being done. And of course, there's conversations in the symposium sections of various art fairs that are talking about this massive issue. But in general, I think that the problem is really deeper than that. These are more a band-aid over like the problem of all of us flying everywhere and shipping art objects to various locations to then be sent off again in five days. There's 300 and some fairs in the world right now, right? Imagine if the ones that are near to each other started to join together or partner up and have some sort of electric bus that's bringing collectors from from fair to fair. Just to really spell out the almost paradoxical situation that we've come into, the art fairs have been a key reason that the art market has expanded so exponentially over the past decade or so because it has started to tap into these global audiences So how are art dealers who have been put in the position of having to fly on a jet across the world in order to put their art in a stand in some foreign city again and again and again over the course of the year in order to just make their revenue, how are they starting to deal with this? Well, I think that what is becoming clear is that we don't really have our Greta Thunberg of the art world yet. So inherent in that is a huge opportunity for people in the business. And so I think... There has been a lot of changes in the past six months to a year in that regard. Tadeus Ropach, who's a gallerist um, in Paris and Salzburg, he has started to discuss the issue of, of shipping. And he's now has a whole new storage dedicated to reusing crates. And he has been talking about the different carbon footprints of of sea shipping versus air freights. They're trying to combine shipments for collectors so that they're not constantly sending things out individually. Um, and they're working to talk with their shipping companies on like what the actual CO2 output of their shipments is. Kate McGarry, who's a dealer in London, has also been something of like a thought leader on this issue. She has stopped taking planes anywhere in Europe. So I think what you start to realize is that this is also about deceleration. And a lot of dealers have realized that if they just don't need to ship things as quickly, if they can take a bit more time to get to fares, slow down the way they're doing their business a little bit, it can actually be quite productive for their carbon footprint. It's interesting that another arena that involves a lot of high-octane travel like the art business, is the music business, where concerts are somewhat analogous to art fairs. Earlier this year, Coldplay isn't, uh, (laughs) you know, isn't um, the leader of the free world, but they have taken a very visible stance by declaring that they're going to stop touring until they figure out a carbon neutral way to do it. And the band Massive Attack has partnered with Manchester University to research the main sources of carbon dioxide emissions in the concert business and try to figure out some ecological best practices that can be distributed among the world's bands to try to avert the climate apocalypse. So are we seeing any kind of collective action, any kind of leadership like this that is happening in the art world? 
I mean, some artists are being very vocal or even just productive in the sense Thomas Saracino is currently measuring the CO2 output of his studio and his art practice. He has a show on at Esther Schipper right now, which is a gallery in Berlin where he also has his studio. And the whole show, which is a huge webbed installation, packs up into one crate. It's not necessarily the work is about climate change, but climate is being considered in the way that he is making his work. And I, I think that that's what... I would hope to see more artists start to realize is that this is a huge opportunity to be innovative. And there's been some other artists who have also been quite productive, like Tino Segal. I mean, his whole practice is basically immaterial. And he travels by train everywhere that he goes. Then there's Olafur Eliasson, of course. He famously brought icebergs from Greenland into downtown London last winter which, you know, has mixed reviews, again, because there's a carbon footprint inherent in that. But yeah, I feel like we're at the mini-disc era of <laughs> climate activism <laughs> in the art world, and we haven't quite reached the iPod. <laughs> <laughs> so you referenced before that Art Basel has been buying carbon credits in order to offset the footprint of its speakers that it's flying in for its conversation series. Carbon credits seem to be one of the more concrete ways that the people in the art world are thinking about addressing their impact. Do carbon credits actually present a viable solution? Well, there's something, but I think that obviously avoidance and reduction is what we need to be concerning ourselves with more. Um, because carbon offsetting is basically paying money so that you can continue to do what you are already doing, which we all know is bad for the environment. So that being said, it is a really interesting solution. And I think it is a really viable one to at least get people thinking in the direction of carbon footprints, if only as mm -hmm. an interim kind of fix that we would hopefully get to avoidance reduction in the long term. Not that we have that long, apparently. And it's also still quite minor. I was reading that 9% of German air travelers, for example, offset their flights. And I would guess that that 9% is probably of the wealthier class. So this is definitely a practice of a certain kind of elite. That being said, flying economy from New York to Miami Beach spends about 3.3 metric tons of CO2. And to offset that would cost about 24 bucks. Wow. So it's not that expensive. However, of course, it depends on, on your income. So we have a bit of a problem where being ecological is a wealthy undertaking, right? Well, I think that it seems like 2020 is going to be a real reckoning about this. And what I find kind of heartening is that we've had a bunch of reckonings in society recently that the art community has actually done fairly well in tackling. Absolutely. And I think that's why movements like Extinction Rebellion are looking to us because we're supposed to be the sort of thought leaders. And I think that, you know, we're lagging a little bit behind in this right now. It's interesting you bring up this question of other big issues like gender imbalance or systemic racism in museums. This kind of doesn't compute in the same way with ecological considerations because you can't exactly buy more art to fix this problem. You can buy a film by Arthur Jaffa and then incorporate it into a collection or into a show and it can say something really meaningful, but shipping an iceberg from Greenland to London is causing a problem by speaking to a problem. 
So I think a lot of these changes that the art world needs to do with regards to the climate are not able to be as poetic immediately. I think we have to think structurally, like in the same way that museums have started to think about the structures of their collections and the biases in their collections. So yeah, I think that this is going to be a new conversation that museums are going to have to reckon with. And it's going to be sort of in the back rooms of museums before it's in the actual show floor, so to speak. So Kate, you've been covering this very closely for a while now, and I have a feeling that you're going to be covering it for the foreseeable future. So I look forward to reading more about what you come up with. Thank you very much for joining me this week. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Mick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.